Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Yep, I'm sitting here at my wife's makeup table in my bedroom because I have no office and a house full of children. Thea, I presume, is loosely reclining with a big hairy dog somewhere and we are united as ever by questionable technology. Thea, hello. Hello, we are, yes. <laughs> Yes. Not we are uh, reclining. Is Alf there? It's the questionable technology. No, no Alf's in the yeah. kitchen. Are you re- He's staring at his bowl. Well, I think we've all done a bit of that over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, speaking of which, culinary existence, are you coping food-wise? Um, things have become a little bit strained. We've been putting off going to the supermarket for ages, for obvious reasons. Um, veg box yeah. is running low. It's the hungry gap as well, so uh, there's not a lot of... Yeah produce coming through but yeah have, we're, you been, we're have, you, have you had any of those sort of weird sort of bringing together strange ingredient meals um not too weird the strangest i got was possibly which isn't at all strange really um i just never thought to put jerusalem artichokes in a risotto before and i did that last night oh yeah you're keeping it real aren't you yeah <laughs> Thea, I put Jerusalem artichokes in my risotto. Okay, okay. The weirdest part is that a few a few nights before, this is slightly more desperate, I suppose, or just odd, uh, was a baked bean uh, kind of stew type thing with uh, kimchi and uh, Korean red pepper mm. sauce. So, I mean, that was nice. The combination of baked beans and and sort of Korean fare has possibly possibly never been done before. I don't know. <laughs> shall I tell it? Shall I tell you one of mine? Go on. I got then. microwave microwave rice, right. and then I chopped some salad vegetables and I stirred them together with some chopped up fish fingers. And uh, it was kind of my, it, that was involuntary. It was kind of, yeah, it was my version of like a Hawaiian poke pokey pokey oh. thing. No, I mean that does sound disgusting. It was really <laughs> nice. Oh, for God's sake. What you do is judge. Uh, anyway, uh, people have been uh, getting in touch with us. And here's the thing I, I really would like people to carry on getting in touch with because it's a lovely thing to do um, 
in these most isolating of times. Tell us what you're eating. I mean, I'm always interested to know any any sort of strange meals you've had. Uh, you can tweet us. You can email me stig.able at the dash tls.co.uk. Shall I read out a couple of emails there that we've had? Do it. Andrew Morris has emailed to say how, and this is a lovely, he's put this so beautifully. He's got a small child. This magical time that everyone's been gifted hasn't arrived at our house. Our life is much the same. Um, only it feels like the box we have to live in has got smaller. But what he did do was send us a Rembrandt that he'd redrawn. And it was brilliant, wasn't it? The idea of these people who've been redrawing. Yeah, excellent. Have you done yours yet, Thea? Uh, I haven't. I've I've taken a step closer to it in that I dug out my drawing material. So that's, okay, that's, okay. that's something. Okay. Working my uh, way Wayne, up. It, yep. So any sketches, do let us know. And then Wayne's emailed from Weimar, and he's a real man of the world because he's listened to us in Qatar and China. And he's been reading Marjorie Allingham based on a recommendation in this podcast, The Tiger in the Smoke, which is an absolute huge belter that I read last year. Um, so hello to Wayne. Please do share your book's recommendations because it's actually good to hear what you're reading. And a couple of others, Lee's tweeted us from One Up in Western Australia, where she's certainly isolated. And Anthony has tweeted from Oslo with a picture of his multi-doodle dog called Beckett. That is a great name for a dog. So any <laughs> listeners with literary dogs, they're always welcome on this podcast. Anyway, enough of all that. Do get in touch. Food, dogs, books. We'll have anything on the show, really, won't we? I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> not picky. We're, we're not picky. Uh, anyway, but you should be subscribed to, the, to TLS. Let me help you do that cheaply. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. Best price anywhere on the internet, five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, what with all this isolation, quiet and staring out of the window, has there ever been a better time for bird watching? Richard Smith, TLS Twitcher, has written a charming essay on the subject and will give us some tips. We've also got a real corker of a sensationist story from the early Edwardian period, featuring secret lesbian romance, morphine and an evil rector. Ellen Crowell has been sleuthing for us. And who knew that podcast friend Michael the Dr. Keynes is also a fine poet? Well, he's got a poem in the paper and will read it out for us. Here are the bare facts of a story brought to light in this week's TLS. In Essex, in 1905, a 24-year-old woman called Augusta McGowan is discovered dead, draped over her chaise long. She is the wife of the parson of Nevendon. The parson, Willie McGowan, has been blind since birth. Two days after Augusta's death and a few miles down the road, another young woman, the tuberculotic Theodora Uniac, is also found dead. The two women were very, very close. Indeed, they wrote to each other regularly. They both loved decadent literature, Wilde, Simmons and Dowson especially. A peculiar telegram comes to light. Add to this relationship another newsworthy turn of events, a scandal involving the blind parson, and you see why Ellen Crowell, who investigates the story in this week's TLS, describes it as sounding like something salvaged from a rubbish bin full of rejected Ibsen drafts. <laughs> Ellen Crowell, <laughs> stig laughing there. Uh, <laughs> Ellen Crowell joins us on the line to fill us in. Ellen, hello. 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 Um, 
thank you for this excellent piece. It's um, it makes such a great read. It is an absolute belter of a story. I mean, I just want to say that before we start. I, every time <laughs> I, 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 re- I read this and I kept getting to a point where going, oh, come on. And then another detail emerges. <laughs> before we start, Ellen, you're going to give us, give us your word. This is a true story. This is an absolutely ripped from the headlines, true story, recovered from the dustbin of history. Absolutely. Excellent. I mean, you can't ask for a better sell than that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Could you just run us through what happened on September the 8th, 1905? Augusta McGowan, who was in her early 20s and had been married to William McGowan, the blind rector of Nevenden for about four years, was worried about her close friend, Theodora Uniak, who lived about five miles away from her. And she was unable to visit this friend, so she seems to have sent her a telegram, a desperate telegram, and she received a response to this telegram from Theodora's mother. And this response seemed to put her into an incredibly morbid cast of mind, and she drank a lot of morphine and committed suicide on her chaise lounge and died. That's what happened on that day. But it was not apparent for quite a while exactly what happened to Augusta. So it sort of it started to become apparent. There was an inquest um, very shortly after Augusta's death. Um, what happened there? Because it was at this point that the peculiar telegram was sort of released to the public. The initial inquest did not mention the telegram. It mentioned the poison and two letters on her person, one to one that was a suicide letter and the other that was a letter in Braille to her husband. But it did not mention that there was this telegram. The telegram only came to light after Theodora died. And the man who had done the initial inquest had a friend in Rayleigh who said, I think there's a connection between these two cases. And so this man, C. Edgar Lewis, the coroner, decided that he was going to have a second inquest in which he brought the mother in and asked, well, what was this telegram about? And the mother, who was the person who sent the telegram that sent Augusta into fits, decided she didn't want to go much further than just say, I just told her Theodora is asleep because that was true. And um, the the C. Edgar Lewis, the coroner you mentioned there, he's a he's a really important player in in this whole kind of series of events. But before we we come to him, let's just go back to this telegraph. So the line, um, the line that was sent to Augusta that 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 sort of led to her death, basically. Um, the phrasing of that is key because that's where we get to see the very peculiar way in which they communicated. Yes. So what the mother wrote back to um, Augusta's telegram directed to her friend Theodora was, Theodora is asleep, which is in fact a ridiculous response to a telegram or a, a strange response to a very strange telegram. And the telegram that Augusta sent is an almost unintelligible mishmash of references both to decadent writers and to some of the characters in their poems and novels. 
Um, so on first read, when I encountered this telegram, which was reported in the newspapers, I thought, well, what is this? This is just this jumble. And it took a long time for me to figure out, oh, actually, there's a logic behind what Augusta was sending Theodora. And in later inquests, it, it is revealed that Augusta was, in fact, in the habit of sending cipher telegrams um, to Theodora. So this was something her family knew about, that they, they had a practice of using decadent poetry, or as different people who were, who were writing about this called it neurotic literature or erotic literature, they used the raw materials of that reading to compose coded telegrams that parents, ostensibly, or husbands would not be able to understand. Can you give us an example, um, Ellen? If you, if, can you read a little bit about out from that telegram? Because it is, it is it's so, in code, isn't it? It sounds, it sounds ridiculous. Yes. So the only telegram we have, because it's the only one that was reported in the newspapers, is, it reads, Theodora, stop, to Grove Road, stop, one, dot, three, stop, three, one, stop, Dowson, Stella, Morris, Arthur, Dorian, just convey to Aphrodite one thing, if possible. And that's it. So the mother, uh, who knows how many of these she had received, whether her response was uh, a baffled response or an irritated response, but all she responded to this very strange telegram was, Theodora is asleep. And I mean, within the context of the relationship and the... Um the way that they commu- communicated through this this decadent cipher, that sort of spells the end. I mean that that was a trigger. Well, did she did she read yes. from that that, that that she was that, that Theodore was dead? Well, this is what I this is what I um, conjecture in the piece because we don't know exactly what triggered the suicide, but we do know that she sent that plea for one word, if possible, on that same day. So she had been incredibly worried about Theodora's health. They had been separated. They were not, I mean, I I suppose that as Theodora's health declined precipitously, Augusta could no longer go visit her. And we know from Augusta's maidservant, Ethel, that Augusta had planned to go to Rayleigh that weekend. So perhaps she had been put off from going because Theodora had taken a turn for the worse. And she seems to have been incredibly afraid that Theodora was dead or dying. And so she wrote this telegram. It was responded to immediately. And the response, because it was cryptic, the mother may have the mother seems to have meant it quite literally but because theodora mm-hmm. and augusta were in the habit of writing kind of coded metaphor laden cryptic telegrams cribbed from decadent poetry or every reference to sleep is a reference to either sex or death in ernest dowson so she seems to have read it within the language that she and her lover had created and so took her own life that afternoon. For people listening, the reference to decadent writers, you know, Oscar Wilde um, uh, and, and Simons particularly, 
These are known as gay writers. This is they are communicating in within a gay aesthetic. These two women is is that that's obviously what both they intended, and that's what how it would be interpreted by by others. Is that right? Do you think? I think I think it's interesting. I mean, certainly wild at this time, and other writers associated with the Yellow Book, um, which Ernest Dowson and Arthur Simmons certainly were, um, and so there's there's an association with. Uh, a kind of a, a, a deviant sexuality? Absolutely. Um, you know, Ernest Dowson's poetry is about women, um, generally. Uh, it is not, it's often about um, sex with prostitutes or even some necrophilia, but you've got definitely a perverse sexuality, a deviant sexuality, a sexuality read as non-normative and queer. And they are, in some ways, I think, grabbing onto uh, a web of cultural reference points that, you know, 10 years out from the wild trials were still very much uh, salient to particular subcultures and coded them or they were able to code themselves as different queer outsiders. They're not pulling from, for instance, Michael Field. They're pulling from this particular uh, queer-coded, decadent subculture that is largely male, but also that is more visible than perhaps coding, pulling from Michael Field, per, like, for instance. So if we can get to the, so we've got to the point where there have been two inquests into these deaths, uh, and um, Edgar Lewis, the coroner, has, 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 has linked them. Um, how at this point, what, what, what were the newspaper? How were the newspapers responding to all of this? There was just a, a um, an overall uh, interest in the scandal in general. That this was there was a strange story here. This idea of communicating in cipher was really interesting. At this point in the story, there hadn't been a lot of implication that the two young women were involved in any kind of romantic relationship. So the implication of uh, a lesbian relationship had not yet entered in, in the coverage of the two inquests. It was more just mysterious death, strange telegrams, blind rector. And just in the same way that I think we're interested in this story, the readers of the time were deeply interested in the story. And in fact, the reason I found this story at all was because in doing research for some uh, another piece I was writing about uh, Ricketts and Wilde, um, I found in Charles Ricketts' diaries a reference to this story because he had read it that morning and had just been, in his words, aghast. So at this point, I think readers were just kind of fascinated by the story. But as the story unfolded, the coverage in the press about the deaths, the deaths of these two women, seems to have um, dug up a lot of rumor about the William McGowan, the rector of Nevenden. Because it's not until after you have all this coverage of the death of his wife and the telegrams between his wife and this other dead young woman that these two, these three boys come forward and accuse him of sexual impropriety while they were um, serially employed by him in his home. So the coverage of the death of Augusta and then the death of Theodora, in fact, seems to have led 
to the uncovering of the next big scandal to drop, which is that the rector of Nevenden had been interfering with boys in his employ. And that story, as it comes out, he is then successfully prosecuted for that. Yes. So after the two inquests, he is prosecuted for uh, gross indecency and sent to prison for six months. Um, he's released on bail so he can, after his, the inquest into his crimes, he's released on bail so that he can attend the continuation of, of the inquest into his wife's death because now they've gotten more information and they've translated the Braille letter that she sent to him that she left on her body. They have, they have the telegram, which they hadn't had at the beginning, and they're able to piece the whole case together. And this is where the lesbian um, context of the relationship starts to come into the press after he's also been... Um, He's also been accused of impropriety, and then he's released on bail. He attends the inquest, and more comes out. And this is also where Coroner Lewis sort of really steps into his role, isn't it? He sort of he sort of pulls the strings of the narrative. Is that yeah, fair to uh, say? Yes. The first time I presented this work, someone um, observed that he seems to be kind of a uh, an armchair Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he's just, he's really yeah. excited about the fact that he seems to have a case. And if he just keeps pulling at different strings, he's going to be able to create a vision of this whole web of perversity that he can then expose to the light of day. And he really does a wonderful job in linking all of these things and, and being present in every courtroom and interjecting his own reading of the scandal. So he keeps popping up in every single context. Um, he seems to have really been deeply invested in rooting out the queer perversity at the center of this scandal. He, he also seems determined to exculpate the parson. <laughs> Yes, well, um, I think that he is not as influential, or he's not as instrumental in in that last piece of the story as the judge, because the judge in the case, when he's when he's um, when when Willie McGowan, after the inquest into Augusta is concluded, Augusta's death is concluded, um, when Willie McGowan is brought. Uh, to be sentenced. It's the judge who really, looking at the whole case, steps in and um, voices this real change in opinion. Because whereas at the end of Augusta McGowan's inquest, the, the jury was really angry at the husband, felt that the husband should have been more present, that he wasn't caring for his wife, that he was someone who was gone all the time and obviously uh, his wife had been ill-treated. And that was definitely the point of view of Augusta's family as well. Her father weighs in um, saying that he had been, he and his wife had been trying to get Augusta to leave her husband um, because of the, the boys, the reference to the boys. But she refused to leave him. And I think in part because she, by living with William McGowan, she was close to Theodora Uniac. And so when Theodora died and Augusta died, the 
the sympathy was with the women for a time. But when William McGowan was actually sentenced, suddenly all of that public opinion shifted. And I think it has a lot to do with this perce- this perception that William McGowan was an incredibly talented parson. He was uh, erudite. He was well-read. He was well-liked. And he was um, his status was quite high, and he had fallen very far. And so suddenly, all of the observations about the case started to blame everyone but the parson. Um, it blamed his mother and sister. The boys were a temptation according to the judge. The boys should have known better. He says, but one cannot help thinking that had they been boys of a proper disposition, this might have been nipped in the bud and you might have been saved for your country's good. So the boys are blamed. And then even more than the boys, the women are blamed. The extreme friendship your wife had for another lady and both of them dying simultaneously. Had your wife been more attentive to you instead of so attentive to her female friend, she might have saved you. Um, And then uh, the Whitby Gazette talks about the fact that Mrs. McGowan had contracted a friendship with Mrs. Uniac. The two were devoted to one another and shared a mutual passion for erotic literature, which they read and discussed together. So there's this connection between the friendship between the two women, which is imagined as, uh, to some extent, a disease. She contracted a friendship with a friend and with this other young woman. And then um, to make matters worse, they bonded over decadent literature and used a cipher language uh, cribbed from it to communicate with each other. So there's this, so the, the, the sympathy shifts directly away from the women, away from the boys, and goes directly to the blind rector. And do we know, because um, when I read through this, I got sort of carried away with the Sherlock Holmes nature of it, because it's the right period for Sherlock Holmes, and, and it does actually contain many yes. of the many of the sort of characteristics of a Sherlock Holmes story, you know, the ciphered telegram, the strange timings of the deaths, even the setting. It's very, it's very sort of Conan Doyle all the way through. But there's a kind of pause for me when I thought, is there a love story here between Theodora and Augusta? Do we even know how they met, how they fell in love, what love meant to them? Uh, Because it's so hard to see it through the prism of people who want to exculpate the vicar, people who regard any form of homosexuality as as an abomination. It's quite hard to get to that sort of the love story at the heart of this. Yeah, and I think the place where you see the love story most clearly is in fact in the letter that Augusta wrote in Braille to her husband. And I think that one of the most interesting things about this whole story, I think you're absolutely right. If you're getting all of your information through newspaper coverage, it will be it will be shot through with the opinions of the day and with the prejudices of the day. And it's going to be very hard to recover anything about the lived experience of these people. But that letter in Braille that Augusta wrote to her husband is incredibly clear about her passion and her devotion to Theodora. But it's also clear about her devotion to her husband on some level, that they were, they were clearly in some ways well-matched in, in a way that they were friends. 
that they respected each other, that they cared for each other. She cared to write this letter in Braille that only he would be able to read. And it's clear that he understands the dimensions of her love for Theodora. And she says, there's only, I've cared for only one man, you. So there's, there's something about that relationship that's very, that's very interesting. And also that he refused to ever throw her under the bus when he was talking about her at the inquest. He just kept saying she was devoted to Theodora. I was not going to stop her from seeing Theodora because she loved Theodora. I mean, in a horrible way, were they deliberately providing cover for one another? If she was interested in a woman and he provided cover by being a husband, and if he was interested in young boys, was she providing cover by being a wife? I think there is certainly um, a way to read this story exactly that way. He was in his early 40s when he married Augusta. She was 18. So he seems to have lived for quite a long time, very happily, as a bachelor, and then brought a young wife into um, uh, the parish at Nevenden, which seems to have been very comfortable. She seems to have enjoyed, she set up her, her own little salon, her bijou, as she called it. And she had her own books. He had his own books. She had mobility. She was able to travel around and visit her friends, as was he. He was constantly in London spending time with his friends and whoever else he was with in London. He was, in fact, in London when he was arrested um, on charges of gross indecency and brought back to Essex. So I do think that from the coverage, obviously we can't know for sure, but from the coverage, it does seem that there is some sort of understanding between Augusta and Willie. And the fact that Willie's cousin, who was also Theodora's mother, said, I want nothing to do with the McGowan family. I do not want to engage with this story anymore, does suggest that that it's not just Willie McGowan who was, you know, who was suspect, but that that whole household was kind of a suspect household where a lot of secrets were being kept. Um, well, Ellen, I think I think we'll probably have to leave it there. Sadly, I mean, you um, we should just leave everyone to go and find the people be on our website or, or to pick up their copies. But I mean, you admirably don't labour the point uh, in in your piece. But there's, as you suggest, something strangely contemporary um, about about much of it: the oscillation between sympathy and shaming victim and, and culprit. And um, there's all sorts uh, to find in the piece. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. It's such a good read, isn't it? It is such a it is such a good read, and it I hadn't really thought about the the Sherlock Holmes of which I'm obviously, as you know, a devoted fan. But it's that right period as well. And look, there are it's a it's tragedy, and I don't want to sound too gleeful about it because it's horrible. Oh, no. You know, virtually every yeah. aspect of it is, is horrible. But it there is something out of a Conan Doyle story. I mean, it's, it it just I find it I, I find it kind of astonishing. It is, and it well, I mean, it just reminded me how good true crime can be when it's when it's written well it, it reminded me a bit of elizabeth jenkins have you read harriet from 1934 yes, yes. just so you know disturbing unsettling and, and sad and yeah it's just so well written i recommend it i have already recommended it to everyone but it's not quite out yet when they're recording this <laughs> <laughs> how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we go on, a message from Harvard University Press. Many of us will have been watching a lot of Disney in the last couple of weeks. You hear the sad voice of experience there. And anyway, that may be the source of our expertise on the tale of Snow White. But in the fairest of them all, released this month by HUP, acclaimed folklorist Maria Tartar reveals dazzling variations from across the globe, taking us from Armenia to Switzerland and to the US. The Brothers Grimm gave this story the name by which we know it best, and in 1937, Walt Disney sweetened their somber version to make the first feature-length animated fairy tale, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Since then, the Disney film has become our cultural touchstone, the innocent heroine, her evil stepmother, the envy that divides them, and a romantic rescue from domestic drudgery and maternal persecution. But as every fan of the story knows, there's more to Snow White than that, as this book testifies. Marina Warner describes it as an exciting and authoritative anthology from the wisest good fairy in the world of the fairy tale. Get yours online now. Every morning before our children wake up, my wife Nadine and I sneak downstairs and have a cup of coffee on a sofa by a window. The other day, Nadine kept saying she heard this strange beeping sound and wondered which of our manifold devices had been left on. But it wasn't an electronic intrusion. It was birdsong, so unfamiliar to our ears because it's normally masked by the noise of the road and aeroplanes grumbling over our heads. And indeed, outside my window, I can hear and see more avian life than ever before. Fat pigeons, little flitting great tits, liberated parakeets. 
So I wonder actually whether we chalk this up to one of the hidden benefits of life under lockdown, a renewal of the relationships with birds. Well, the nature writer Richard Smith has been thinking about this and wrote a beautiful essay for the paper this week. He joins Thea and me now. Richard, hello. So uh, your piece really is based on on what you can see when you look out of your window. Um, Just paint the picture for us. What do you see when you look out your window? What's there? Uh, Roofs, mainly. Um, I live in a a mill town in West Yorkshire, a Victorian mill town. So I look out, I see slate roofs. Uh, Beyond that, I see more slate roofs. I see the odd treetop. I've got hills to the left. I've got uh, towns to the right. And I've got uh, acres of sky. Um, That's the main... Uh, one of the main perks of this house. We've no garden, but we've got a lot of sky. And so when you look out to your sky, what birds are visible over, over the course of a, of, a, of a day or a couple of days? Um, it's always, you know, quite dramatically uneventful. Um, pigeons are a classic. Um, jackdaws, there's a lot of jackdaws around here, anywhere in West Yorkshire, particularly in the, the valleys. They seem to just fill up with jackdaws and other COVID. Um, we have the odd buzzard. We have sparrowhawks. Uh, we have goldfinches. Hordes of goldfinches marauding about the place. Um, and there's a chiff-chaff. I've closed the window now to do this, but uh, when I had the window open, I could hear a chiff-chaff nagging away in the alley down below, um, which is very nice. I'm up on the third floor here. Uh, so there's a lot that's heard but not seen, which is um, which It's is difficult practice. to know, isn't it, whether... Um, whether Because I was just thinking when you were saying about corvids of, of how many magpies I've seen recently, and it's difficult to know mm. whether there are more this year or it's just that I'm noticing them so much more because everything feels like it has been, well, it has been intensified by, by isolation and by staring more or less, as you say, the same patch every day, constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we've, when me and my son and daughter have been taking our state mandated exercise in the local park, which is obviously very quiet. Um, you do find it's been, you know, you feel besieged by squirrels and there's a blackbird in every tree and there's a there are goldfinches again everywhere and nuthatches and tree creepers. And yeah, you, you're thinking, are these already responding to our, to the vacancy we've left? Are they already moving in or were they there all along and you were too busy, you know? Do you feel like you have sort of entered into a slightly, slightly more of a relationship with the birds in, in your patch? I mean, I ask because... I feel like I have, and it's difficult to know whether it's just because I'm losing my mind. Um, <laughs> but I, I seem, I feel like we've become more kind of in tune to each other's routines. Like a couple of weeks ago, we noticed, for example, that they seem to be, the birds seem to be in a kind of intense nest building phase. So we started leaving yeah. clumps of the dog's fur out for them. <laughs> and so we'd see them come to gather that and go off and make their nests. And this yeah. week, they seem to be in a slightly different phase. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we have this relationship that's in one sense more intimate because as you say we're watching more we may feel closer but in another sense it's extremely um limited because we can't go after them they go around the corner and i can't chase after them and see where they're going where they're nesting you don't know you might you might see them taking the nesting material but you can't go and find the nest mm-hmm. um and you can't you they'll fly away and you can't even see where they're flying to they, you know they go out of eye shot that's it they're gone so they have this very limited curtailed existence within your view from your house whatever that might be um so you do know them more closely in a way i, I, I say in the essay I, I do have come to know the, the magpies and the jackdaws and the pigeons a little better and the wood pigeons um but i don't have that connection that i would otherwise have of even um experiencing their habitat or even um 
knowing where um where they go when they're not here you know not, normally i'd be down in the woods down by the river up on the moor uh, and i'd have a physical experience of what they experience when they're not not in my street um but now i don't have that now i just see them come here and i, I know them when they're here it's it's, it's a new, new kind of relationship yeah and as our isolation as our freedoms have become more restricted theirs have become more more they're they're more free than ever they were they're not observed they're not followed no absolutely yeah and that's that well that's a whole that's a really interesting subject as regards the whole history of birds and people and this is yet another example of it you know where we move move over uh they move in <laughs> it's really that simple yeah. i mean i'm very pragmatic about um uh about birds and their relationship with us um I mean, in my new book, to segue seamlessly to that, um, <laughs> I, which is called well an indifference. Well done. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, which is called an, an indifference of birds. Uh, I talk about how um, birds respond to human environments without much regard for what we're doing or what we think. If we're not there, they'll move in. They don't really care if it was our house, our buildings, if it was formerly a busy street. That's nothing to them. If they see somewhere where they can feed, can breed, can nest, um, then they um then they will go and do that um i write about in the book i write about um it, it's, it's think in terms of can and can't so i write about when people move away you see windows of can op- opening in deserts of can't um <laughs> so i have a very practical view of, of how birds see the world um and yeah it's just interesting to see gaps open up that you, perhaps you wouldn't expect them to be able to exploit can I, can I ask a sort of first principle question, Richard? Because I, I, when I was a kid, I was a member of the um, Young Ornithologists Club of the RSPB. Yes. Yeah, and I remember, and I remember what, you know, having little binoculars in my garden and watching birds. And, hmm. uh, but I never really, I'm kind of intrigued now that cause I think a lot of people are looking at birds, they're looking at, at nature differently because it's, it's, as you say, it's a small patch of sky or a small patch of grass, a tree in their garden. What sort of pleasure is there for people? Because there might be people listening to this who think, I'm not. I've never quite seen the joy in it. What is the what is the hmm. pleasure in 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 bird watching? Do you think it's different for every bird watcher? Um, and I, I, I'm probably not typical because I dropped out of bird watching for a long time when I turned became a teenager, and you realise that for some reason the cool kids aren't, aren't bird watching. Um, yeah. and I got back into it when I. Um, People always say, oh, I stopped uh, when I stopped caring about what was cool. But the reality is that you stop when you realize it's too late to even try. If you're a lost cause and you might as well do what you want. Um, yeah. So I got back into birds in my, in my early 30s. I'm 41 now. Um, and for me, birdwatching, it's not always about... I'm a quite local birdwatcher. Um, love the birds you're with. <laughs> it's, my, it's my sort of motto because I can always find a lot of depth in birds. I don't spread very wide. I don't have a huge lifeless i haven't seen thousands and thousands of different species. it's respectable but uh nothing very impressive by proper bird of standards um but i do get a lot out of watching the birds that are, that are nearby um because they come with a lot of baggage there's a lot there's a lot to birds they're complicated there's they're complicated in terms of their ecology their relationships with other birds with other creatures with habitats with people um they're interesting in terms of the evolutionary trajectories that have brought them to where they are and ecological trajectories um and they're interesting in in human terms because they have that extra baggage that we've given them um of, of, of poetry and culture so you know when you see a goldfinch or a sparrow or whatever it might be you're not just seeing 
a bundle of bones and feather you're seeing you're seeing a lot more than that you're seeing everything that got it to where it is and you're seeing everything that we've imparted uh, to it and, and does that level of expertise matter? So you, you quote Nabokov in the, on the idea that yeah. a lily's more real to a botanist. And I wonder whether is a bird more beautiful or more real, both, the more you know about it. So I see a jay, a jay comes into my garden. And when I was a kid, jays were really common where I live mm-hmm. in, in the Midlands. But I've not seen a jay, it feels to me, in 20 years. And now there's one in my <laughs> garden. Yeah. Um, and, I have, and I'm delighted to see it, but I don't know very much about it. Um, yeah. Uh, and do you think the more you know, the more pleasure there is? So, I mean, you know, people are th- looking at things to do to occupy their minds over the next few weeks. There's an argument that finding out more about the birds that you might see is a, is a healthful way of, 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 of treating the isolated oh, period. Absolutely. Because- yeah, yeah. I mean, if people do have that look, if people don't have small children to entertain and do have uh, yeah. those lucky people who, uh, who, who have lots of time to learn new things while in isolation, absolutely, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of ways to go about it you, know, you can learn about the songs you can learn about to look at them you can learn about where to find them you can read upon the poetry of bird song or, or, or the nature writing about birds uh, about birds um and what's really interesting in terms of knowing about birds is that everyone builds up their own set of knowledge and facts and association about an animal about a bird or, or any any living thing um and this is one of the things i love about uh, about the study of nature um so when I said, you know, when you look at a bird, you, you're just seeing this a construction, really, a cultural construction and, and a scientific construction. Um, and each one, each person's is different. You know, I'll look at a, a goldfinch and I'll have read X book about goldfinches or Y line of poetry about goldfinches that another person won't have. But they'll have seen my goldfinches or they'll have a different memory of a goldfinch from their childhood or they'll have read the goldfinch by Donna Tartt, which I haven't. Um, and there'll be different layers of appreciation and understanding. And Nabokov, in the quote that I give, sort of hints at this, but he doesn't quite go into it as, as much as I would like, really, because I just think um, the way in which we construct the identities of wild things is fascinating to me. And it's the uniqueness and the, the, the density and complexity of, of those constructions that makes wild things beautiful to me. Uh, what, what we've been actually the last couple of weeks talking about books we've been reading and books we're recommending to people you mentioned there's a kind of you know the literature the poetry of birds or the literature around birds um you quote polly atkins jack door in, in in the piece i mean have you got two or three books that you would suggest we go off and read you know because you know for, for solace or for information or for just for, for pleasure in this period i'll tell you what would be a really good um place to start is um Kyra McClear's Love, Death, Birds, I think, and by Kyra McClear, and it's an amazing book. Uh, but it's not by a, a bird nut, not by a bird enthusiast, but it's by a writer who feels their way into the world of birds and uh, learns to love birds and learns to love people who love birds. Um, and it's beautifully written. It's uh, nature writing by a normal person, which I think the world needs more of. Um, I would also suggest uh, Tim D. Is a wonderful writer on birds and another writer who takes things, um, who writes in a, in a new voice. Uh, a veteran writer, I guess, he's not exactly a new voice in nature writing, but he um, he's an original, and, and I think that's really valuable. And he, his new book, Greenery, is certainly worth a look. This is his last one, it's called Landfill, uh, from a smaller publisher, Little Toller. Um, I'm always on the lookout for people who can write about birds in a original way it's and your piece is so lovely it is um um it was exactly what i needed to read uh this week um so thank you so much for writing it richard and thank you for joining us uh today thank you so much thank you very much cheers
So Thea, when you look out your window, I tell you what, so I, I see, honestly, I, Nadine said to me, what is that annoying noise? Who's left a phone bleep? <laughs> and it was because we, you know, we have planes over us all the time. We live on a high street, so there's road rumbling and there's just none of that at the moment. And there's these great tits that come in and out of the garden. In West London, where I live, there are just hordes of parakeets as well, which mm. were came from, which escaped from a pet shop or somewhere generations ago and now just I mean they're rather lovely it's because they're, they're they're quite exotic but there's loads of them yeah. um and and every morning before my children get up I just sit and look out of a window and I do feel something healthful about it all I do yeah I do the same and and always make sure I mean this hasn't sort of come on since isolation but certainly because we're spending so much time as Richard says in his piece on the same patch looking at the same patch um yeah it does it does narrow your focus and so i am you know making sure especially that i go out and put bird seed down and you 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 sort of start to pick up their different behaviors and i'd put it on the bird table and then realize that some of the little birds seem to be too frightened to go there because a cat had taken to climbing up sometimes a neighbor's cat so and then you adapt and you put them somewhere else that the cat can't get to kind of leveled yeah. along a, a different part and yeah you, it's it's really it, it's it's just a small boost isn't it <laughs> quite frankly we've started luring on we've started luring our neighbor's cat into our house as well are you gonna eat it no no <laughs> i've now promised i've promised just my kids that we're gonna get yeah, I've promised my kids, having, having just spent the last 10 minutes praising birds, I've just promised my kids we're going to get a cat after lockdown. Oh, dear. Um, I know, I know. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say anything to get through the day, to be honest, at the moment. I'm surprised uh, that a cat, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm surprised that the neighbour's cat came anywhere near ours, because obviously Alf would, Alf does not oh, take yeah. kind of visitors of any, of any sort, but he must have been, he must have does been. He care about, does he care about birds, Alf? Um, he's not too bothered by birds. He likes bee bothering quite a lot. So he 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 bothers the bees. <laughs> uh, he's a right character, isn't he? L lovely. <laughs> Regular listeners to the podcast are familiar with Michael Caine's The 18th Century Expert, Michael Caine's The Shakespearean, Michael Caine's The Man Hostile to Literary Prizes and Lists. But what a pleasure it is to introduce Michael Caine's The Poet. He has a poem printed in this week's TLS and is here to read it. Michael, hello. Hi. It's called Decadence and it is like you, literary, historical and modern all in one go. Uh, tell me why you, <laughs> why you wrote that. Because it, it, it's paired rather beautifully with a great piece about the decadent period of literature. And the, before that is Ellen Kroll talking about the, the women who use decadent poets as well. So there's a whole decadent theme developing. So when did you write this poem and what was the point of it? Oh, this poem is only up, you know, a couple of weeks old. It might relate to current events, who can say? Uh, but the title obviously relates to the great artistic movement that you're referring to. There are two pieces relating to that movement in the TLS this week. So I'm just really glad it fits in with those. So did you read those pieces as well as being inspired by the current period to write this, or were you going to write this anyway, do you think? I, I probably wouldn't have written this. I think I have actually been inspired by, by the TLS, by reading reviews and, and essays in the TLS itself. What a feeling. Um, yeah, and tell us, so, so in this, uh, this poem, you, you reference, uh, tell us about the movement briefly. We've talked a bit about, um, about it with, with Ellen uh, on this programme, but tell us, you reference some, some poets and writers in this poem. Um, 
tell us briefly about 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 them. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear what Ellen has to say about it. Decadence, <laughs> as far as I can tell, is about decline and fall. It's about beauty being separated from um, from morality in the mind of the artist and artificiality triumphing over nature. So in a sense, it's about the decadent mind suffering from um, over-refinement and and ennui and what follows from that is is indulgence and and despair and all kinds of things that in an artistic sense can be quite um sophisticated and sexy and interesting but also involve tremendous kinds of naughtiness in in life as in art at least for some people you know like um staying up past one's bedtime and, and smoking and drinking and and the rest of it um and yeah. I, as you say i do name a couple of the i i sort of name check a few of the key figures in this in this short poem uh, one of them arthur simmons called decadence a new and beautiful and interesting disease uh, and, oh, and i suppose that's quite a, a much quoted idea about decadence itself and also decadence i suppose is the end of an era it's the sort of end of a century feeling to it which is possibly why it resonates now for you this sense of maybe it's a new beginning coming but it feels like a it does feel like things ending a little yeah, I think that's it. It feels like, I mean, you, this is maybe a glass half full way of thinking about it, but it's also maybe the culmination of something that's been, you know, thinking about the 19th century, something that's been coming for some time, something that's been growing in the minds of writers like Baudelaire and Swinburne and Walter Pater, and then it, and then it catches up with us. And when you get to, it's, it's interesting, in the TLS, we've also had, I think, interesting pieces suggesting there are links to modernism so the modernists obviously pound uh, obviously elliot want you to imagine as a break a sharp break with the past but i think there's now a good argument being put forward by academics that there are more links than people uh, think of and indeed not all decadent writers simply you know overdose in 1900 a lot of them survive um simmons lived into i think the 1940s Really? Well, there you go. That, that's almost that's almost optimistic there, Michael. Uh, let's hear this almost, poem. Almost. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Decadence. With only Dowson's cough for company, I squat in the waiting room and wait, a dumb waiter, uncertain what to do. My fragile stock of bonhomie expired last night when Simmons, sneezing, missed his handkerchief, succeeding in hitting me, reading beside him. I'm not a betting man, but what odds now that we're both diseased? That next I'll gift some germs to Mystic Macken by shaking hands on greeting at midnight retreating to respective beige bedsits, our absinthe-addled minds and bodies broken. That Macken, in his cups, will touch George Moore, who was only passing through. That in turn, he'll enflu the entire Dublin scene. Won't Yates soon slouch to the waiting room door? Michael Caine's reading Decadence there. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks to The Doctor and to Ellen Crowell and Richard Smith. Next week, we're going to do Shakespeare properly. And who knows what else? Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS, helping us to keep Horizons 
sprawled amid this great narrowing. Until next time, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.